This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. This evening, I'm alongside Marcus Ashworth from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, Marcus, that was quite a week in terms of market action. Um, and we're wrapping it up uh, on a day when we've had a very strong payroll number out of the United States, very strong ISM data out of the United States. Not the headline number, but the wages components. You've also just seen a ruling in the United States where in New York, where Amazon's, Amazon is going to be unionizing in New York, which is huge. Uh, and you've had very strong inflation out of the Eurozone and a significant and enormous shift in the price cap in terms of energy here in the UK. Bring it all together for us. What is the takeaway from this? <laughs> what, do we, what, do we, what do we need to learn from all of this? What you're saying is this is the, this is the first day of the second quarter and already... <laughs> We've got uh, seismic changes and, and all sorts of different angles. I mean, the first quarter, uh, which we've just put a wrap to yesterday, was, was possibly one of the most unpleasant and volatile uh, markets I, I've ever known. And it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. Um, I take it from the top. The, 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 the first sort of number out this morning of, of importance was the Eurozone inflation number. And it's just horrific. You know, really, we are in a situation whereby, you know, we, we've got expected to, to peak in, in November. Now it's in March, and, and, it, and it's just blown all, all, all measures out. And the forecasts are just from the, from the European Central Bank are so wildly wrong. You know, that's what scares me the most, is that they have no handle on what's going through. Um, the good news is, is that, uh, one, um, the chief economist, Lane, who's actually in danger of being left so far behind the rest of the governing council that him and, and President Lagarde could be... Uh, almost outvoted at one point, but certainly he's talking about ending QE earlier. Uh, that puts the April 14th meeting, probably not live, but certainly will tee up the June 9th ECB meeting to possibly then end QE, you know, when they say the summer, uh, they probably mean the end of quarter two, not quarter, quarter three. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I would say that this might be that this might finally be the top of inflation in, in Europe. So that's a, that's a great thing. I've heard that before somewhere. I, yeah, well, like every, every time that. the last four months, but I, I, you know, this could well be it. And I think there's more likely to be downside inflation sort of uh, stuff coming through. But, you know, who knows what happens in, in, in Ukraine. So um, then, of course, you know, as you mentioned, the payroll number, which, you know, some people had thought could be, well, we just had so many random numbers in, and forecasts in the last few months. It's good to see a relatively consistent one. It was slightly missing, but not missing. But well, the one thing that caught my eye straight away was that unemployment rate, 3.6%. Amazing. Now, that I think it got to 3.5 in September 2019, but that, i.e. pre-pandemic. But, you know, we are back to levels which are super, super tight. And um, I just think that shows you that, that the economy in the States is roaring ahead. They've got, you know, very, very tight uh, yep. employment market, and that's feeding through, obviously, clearly into inflation as well. And that's something which is a very tough task for the uh, Federal Reserve to, to, to calm down, and, and clearly they're going to carry on with um, 
with their rate increases, and that's clearly why the curve inverted properly this time. Um, only by a few basis points, but it's, it looks like it's going to close uh, inverted. We've got a 2.30s inversion now as well. Hold that thought. I want to come back to it. Let's kind of bring things together a little bit and kind of get an idea of what is going on uh, in the markets right now. FTSE 100 closing up by three-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq's currently negative, down by four-tenths of 1%. Uh, the S&P's down by two tenths, three tenths of one percent. So that's what's uh, happening in equities. Uh, this week, we've generally seen actually a fairly positive picture for equities uh, and a generally fairly negative picture for the bond market. We'll dig into the details uh, a little bit more with Marcus as we work our way through the program. Let's get some headlines now with Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Uh, developing story as Russia says uh, Ukraine helicopters have made a rare cross-border strike. A local governor says oil tanks in Belgorod were hit in a night raid. Ukraine has not commented on the alleged attack on Russian territory. International nuclear monitors are preparing to return to the stricken Chernobyl nuclear power plant. That's the site of the deadly 1986 meltdown. As soon as Russian troops complete their withdrawal and Ukrainian operators take back control. Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi of the International Atomic Energy Agency says monitors should be on the ground very soon. And the UK has started criminal and civil investigations into the recent firings of 786 workers at P&O Ferries as prospects narrow for reversing the money-saving move. The government has referred the case to Britain's Insolvency Service, which deals with companies in financial distress. P&O is owned by Dubai-based DP World. The surprise firings on March 17th, many conducted over video, unleashed uproar across the UK, leading officials in Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government to pledge that they would force P&O to back down. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. This whole labour market story is fascinating, and I think it's going to be one that we're going to spend a lot of time talking to over the, about over the next few years. Uh, you've just seen this story uh, in, in Staten Island, Charlie, where where the Amazon warehouse there is now going to be unionising. So it's going to be a subject we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. And the issue here is whether or not we see um, this, this increasingly emboldened labour market, increasingly emboldened labour, producing basically sticky second round effects when it comes to inflation. Now, inflation is certainly uh, very high in the eurozone at the moment, but it's largely being driven by the energy story. I, it's kind of primary supply side shock inflation uh, that we're seeing at the moment. My good friend and colleague Francine Lacroix caught up with the Dutch central banker Klaus Knott a little bit earlier on down in Italy. He was talking about what the ECB should do next. Inflation seems to be creeping up and up and up, but we heard earlier on this week by the ECB president that monetary policy should still be gradual. Is this a mistake? No, of course not. I, I mean, inflation comes up, but of course, I mean, today's inflation in some ways is water under the bridge, right? I mean, this is all energy price inflation. It's coming from outside the monetary union. And our main task is to make sure that this temporary inflation doesn't become entrenched into permanent inflation. For that, we closely watch the medium-term inflation outlook, what it will do, let's say, two years from now. And there are sufficient indications that inflation is still to converge back to our 2% target. And as long as that is the case, yes, we can afford to be gradual. What does it mean to, you know, if inflation keeps on getting higher and if the supply shocks or energy, if something in Ukraine gets worse, what does it mean in terms of your forecast and what does it mean for QE? 
Well, we've already gone through a series of negative supply shocks. So in the scenario you sketch, it's basically more of the same. It would mean that the dent to growth would be even more pronounced than was already in our March projection. But at the same time, it would also mean even higher inflation for an even longer, peri uh, longer period of time. So if anything, uh, then we should look for the most ambitious way to normalize uh, monetary policy in a scenario like that. Ambitious how? Well, within, for instance, the parameters that we've set ourselves in March, that means that we will have to wind down the APP as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. We said within Q3, well, that would imply in the beginning of Q3 rather than the end of Q3. And then after the summer break, I think all options would be on the table and would have to be on the table. Klaus Notz, the Dutch central banker, talking to Francine Lacroix on the shores of a rather chilly Lake Como, but nevertheless, spending a few days at Villa Dest, very nice, very nice indeed. There are there are outside broadcast gigs and there are outside broadcast gigs, and I have to say, Marcus, that is one of the nicer ones. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of where this leaves us. I, Klaus Not, in in some ways, actually is is the more hawkish end of the spectrum. I didn't think he sounded that hawkish today with inflation running at seven and a half percent. No, he didn't. Uh, and Klaus Knott's quite sort of famous for coming out with some quite punchy statements from time to time. So I thought he was very reasoned, which in some sense makes me worry a bit more, because he's clearly not feeling like he's, he's having to say something bold or, 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 or ring the bell for attention, because I, I think the, the, the governing council is moving quite clearly in, in unison a bit more now. Um, and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, I think laying the chief economist is, who's on the dovish side, along with Lagarde, are, are having a struggle here because they're going to get outvoted if, they, if, they, if they're not very careful. Um, and clearly his timing is important as well. Now, the one thing we have to understand about the APP or, and the PEP together, or whatever, that there's, there's about 400 billion odd of reinvestment uh, to continue on every year. So it's not that you know, QE is going to stop altogether. It's just not going to be any more new QE. And there's a lot of flexibility within that pet for investment as well. So it doesn't leave them completely without any form of defense. But it's evident that, you know, at some point, as I argued yesterday, you know, the, the, the ECB yeah. has got to, to seize it, stop QE, and then hike rates up to, I think, zero, end negative rates, stop the constant QE. And I think they'll be hugely surprised at how well, one, the European economy will take. In actual fact, by normalizing you know, the, the monetary laws of nature, I think they might actually be very surprised on the economic boost they get from it. There are risks here to growth that are significantly different to what we're seeing over in the United States. Um, how does the ECB react if, if growth becomes the bigger problem here? It's really interesting. Shell was talking today about the fact that it's really concerned about using this new Russian payment method to buy gas from Russia. If gas gets turned off, we've got a really big problem here in Europe, and it's probably more going to be a growth story rather than a an inflation story, because actually there there won't be that we'll be in the position where we're having to basically limit gas, limit energy, rather than over in the United States where just prices are simply going higher. It will be a there will be a restriction, a constr a constriction placed on the economy. Yeah, but the point is, if the ECB can't control inflation, and evident they can't. They, they have even less chance of being able to control growth, as we have seen over the past you know, couple of decades. So the reality is monetary policy can only do so much. And reality, something like a growth shock like this, it shouldn't really be down to 
um, monetary policy. It's already at negative interest rates. It, if it's zero or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not alter a thing. Possibly, and only possibly, fiscal policy might be able to do something here. And this is all about you know, softening the blows and providing incentives of things to bounce back, as we saw through the pandemic. So we've got the template. Yeah. We have finally the fiscal cavalry turned up. It really is not the ECB job. And that's the trouble, is unfortunately, everyone just looks straight to ECB and help buy more bonds, when that has not helped at all in the last few years, and it really won't help at all now. The playbook, yeah, the playbook's definitely changed. Um, and as you say, you need to focus more on the fiscal than the monetary side. Um, you could, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see ultimately how history judges uh, negative interest rates and and the aggressive QE that has been delivered. Do you think the pennies dropped in the UK? How big the problem is now? Um, I, yesterday, I was just deluged with people talking about meter readings and panicking about the, the cost of living squeeze. Um, the, this morning, I, I get up in the morning and listen to the radio. I, it was all about this. It, it, it's been talked about, but suddenly there seems to be this sort of dawning realisation of how aggressive it's going to be. Well, I mean, I come at this from a slightly different angle, as I think you might suspect. And bear in mind, people's wages are going up. People's house prices and various other assets are going up. There's not all pain. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of subsidies coming in, none of them necessarily big enough to counteract, that's for sure. And clearly the national insurance uh, rise hasn't, it may have technically hit yet. We won't see it until the end of the month. And that might shock a lot of people. So, but the point is, is there are ways and means of, of, of softening this a bit. And I do think, for one thing, the meter readings is a very key point. You know, I, and I've certainly done this. I'm not paying a month, a yearly uh, plan in advance and giving a whole bunch of money to some random energy company. No, I'm going to play it month by month. And if I have to top up each month an extra payment, I'll do it. And because I'm hoping that by the time the summer comes, one, my consumption's gone down, and two, sold the gas price. How uh, do you think that's realistic? I, the the, the gas price is so far away it, from where it was that well, the danger yeah, yeah. is that that even if it comes down, it's still going to be very elevated. We've basically come from a position where gas prices were very muted to one where they're very elevated. The 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 cap is basically having to play catch up, and it's not delivering. I, we, we're not at where we should be if this was an open market. Well, I sort of disagree. With that I mean, it, it, it's it's one system. I'm not saying it's the perfect system, but in actual fact, this has saved a lot of households an awful lot of money for a very oh, long time. Oh, sure, definitely. While. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the not, fact I'm... it doesn't quite so much anymore, and it's still capped, by the way. Yeah. It's, you know, the way the system self-corrects itself once every six months. You know, you look in hindsight and, and a lot of things you might have done better. But, you know, there is a, there's a real shock across the globe. People are, are handling it in different ways. Different countries are doing different things. And I, and I think the U.K. economy, a bit like we're talking about the, the U.S. economy with regards to un, unemployment and, you know, jobs available or not available, the high, et cetera, is so strong. There is a lot of good news in the economy, which people are very easily, understandably, perhaps, overlooking because they're just looking straight at what they're having to pay more. But wages and salaries are going up, and it is, you know, very easy, in theory, to get a job now than where perhaps it may not have been a few years ago. So there are not all bleakness, and are also perhaps not enough, certainly not enough, but within the next year or two, there will be more coming down the pipe from the government and suffering things. Marcus, up next, we'll talk more about Ukraine. This is Bluebook. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
Good evening, 18 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. We should talk about what is happening in and around Ukraine. Uh, Overnight, we had an attack by Ukrainian helicopters reaching into Russia uh, and hitting um, some oil supply facilities. Uh, This is quite significant in terms of taking the war to Russia. um, And I kind of wonder what impact that is going to have. We've also had a summit taking place today between China and the European Union, the European Union making it very clear uh, that there does need to be no assistance from China uh, when it comes to helping out Russia. Um, Ultimately, we'll see whether or not that is going to be something that China is going to be prepared to do. Certainly, uh, it was greeted with a, uh, a cautious line from the Chinese. Let's bring in Ros Matheson, Bloomberg Executive Editor for International Government. Ros, what did we make of the attack over the border by these Ukrainian helicopters into Russia? Fuel has been a key part and a key problem for the Russian advance. How significant was this? Well, it's interesting, as you say, because for weeks, Russia has been targeting a lot of fuel and oil depots across Ukraine, in fact, quite far in the west of the country, hitting those with missiles, really trying to destroy a lot of the infrastructure, uh, both for the economy and for the Ukrainian military. And what we saw is Russia saying today that Ukrainian helicopters basically crept a little bit across the border, flew at low altitude and sent missiles into a Russian fuel depot in a town that's about 40 kilometres from the border. Of course, Ukraine has not confirmed or actually denied that they were behind that fire. There was a very big fire that was caused by it. But certainly it seems to have been a targeted attack on infrastructure, at least to send a message to Russia. If you're going to hit us, we can actually have the capacity to hit you back um, close to our border. You'd be surprised to see Ukrainian attacks sort of further into into Russian territory, but certainly, if nothing else, sending a signal to Russia that we're able to come the other way if need be. Ross, um, dare I say it, but does that not give the Russians some form of uh, incentive possibly to go across the Polish border um, which was obviously they they, they bombed that uh, airbase, which was very close inside Ukraine to the Polish border. Could they not, if theoretically, therefore expand uh, into NATO land? I mean, obviously that would be a, a wholly different ball game, but it does it does alter the dynamics a little bit. Well, it was interesting because the Russian response today was fairly muted. Of course, they said that they weren't happy about the the attack or the fire, at least, that was caused at the fuel depot. They said a number of people were killed as a result. But their response was pretty pretty muted. And it perhaps would have been different if it had happened uh, either in the very early days of the war or even preceding the war, because the fear had been that there would be some kind of quote, false flag uh, pretext for Russia to go in. And that could be that they would say that Ukraine had attacked them inside their own border. So this would have been a much bigger thing if it happened uh, before the war or indeed in the early days. But it seems like Russia is taking it in a pretty low-key fashion for now and not not sort of threatening reprisals. But as you say, really, if they want a reason to go into Poland, it's probably more because they would say that they need to stop Western military aid that's coming in from Poland to the western city of Lvov. They need to stop those convoys. That would probably be the rationale that they would cite for that. The Russians have now pulled back from Chernobyl. The IAEA is going to be sending monitors in. Um, I read some unconfirmed reports suggesting that actually Russian troops that have been there and digging trenches may have suffered uh, some sort of um, potential radiation poisoning. Do we know anything about the state of the site? This was a huge fear across much of Europe uh, that we could see uh, maybe some sort of nuclear disaster taking place here. Well, it's interesting because this, of course, follows the IAEA chief has had 
uh, a week-long visit where he's gone both to Ukraine and Russia to sort of urge everybody collectively in this conflict to take a lot more care around these key nuclear sites. Of course, it's not just Chernobyl, but Ukraine has quite a few nuclear power plants around the country that have come into direct contact during the conflict. Um, but the IAEA is saying that they're, they're expected to send their inspectors back into Chernobyl because there will be a handover of control back to the Ukrainian side from that as the Russian troops leave. And he's saying that there has been some localised radiation at that site, but nothing too dramatic. It's probably that the Russian troops, not really knowing the area particularly well, have used their vehicles and driven off into the forest and disturbed some radioactive dust. So the damage in this case is probably just to the Russian troops themselves. But certainly a lot of effort here to ensure that uh, there's not further attacks in or around these facilities. Most certainly was. Now, um, with regard to uh, the areas around Kiev and, and other parts of western Ukraine or the south where allegedly the Russians are pulling away from, um, has there actually been, one, ever clear evidence they're doing that, and two, has there, have they stuck their word or they have just been back-bombing uh, and trying to catch Ukrainians out with it? There are indications that as they're pulling back, as you say, they're back going on the way out. Um, they're certainly trying to protect themselves as they divert their resources elsewhere. But there's another incentive in all of that, and that's to sustain some troop presence in the north and some activity in the north, because equally, as Russian troops move further to refocus the efforts on the east and the south, they don't want the Ukrainian troops following them there. Um, but, so they really need to keep the existing Ukrainian forces where they are. So you'll see a situation potentially where there's some withdrawal, some replenishing of resources perhaps, some yep. rediversion of troops perhaps, but also a presence that will sustain in the north in some fashion. And that's also probably why you're seeing consistent shelling still of those cities in the north. They really need to keep the Ukrainian troops somewhat occupied at least there, even as Russia itself refocuses yeah. attention. Uh, and what about the the threat, this threat of, of an encirclement uh, of the Ukrainian army that everyone was very worried about about a week or so ago? Is, is that threat, well, I'm sure it's not diminished, or is that altered at all? It does seem to have, to have altered a bit. Again, like the Russian focus is really about securing cities in the east and particularly getting Mariupol, the city that's been under siege for weeks now, to, to finally surrender. Um, Certainly it's in a very weak position and vulnerable to that happening. And then you could see a situation where Russian troops move further to the west as well, because what they really want to do is secure those land bridges they can have between Crimea and the Russian mainland. So the idea of sort of encircling other parts of Ukraine seems to have seems to have faded, at least for now, recognition of the tactical challenges of the Russian um, yeah. attack so far and certainly the resistance from Ukraine. Ros, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed for updating us. We always appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg's Ros Matheson on the latest from Ukraine. Up next, we're going to turn our attention to the US economy. The payroll data out a little earlier. The ISM industry data out a little bit earlier. What does it mean for the Fed? What does it mean for the bond market? Mike McKee will be joining us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. It is now 5.30 this Friday evening, the 1st of April. I hope you dodged all the jollity earlier. There were a few uh, obvious um, April Fool's Day jokes on Twitter I saw a little bit earlier on. 
that, but not too many. I think the, the big focus was on the uh, the cost of living squeeze, which seems to have dominated the news agenda over the last 24 hours. Uh, we'll come back. We'll talk about what is happening with the U.S. economy uh, in just a moment. Uh, quick check on where we are stateside. Equity markets off a little bit, uh, not by much. But the big story really in the bond market. We've now got a curve inversion. Uh, front-end rates uh, are higher in terms of their yield than, than rates further out along the curve to the 10s and to the 30s. Um, now, in theory, this should signal a recession does it this time round uh, is being hotly debated uh, amongst many economists around the world. We will be joined by one of those economists in just a moment. Mike McKee will be joining us to give us his take on what the payroll number and the ISM number delivered uh, for the US economy today. First up, though, let's go to Charlie Pellet with some headlines. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. Here's what's going on. European Union leaders say they told China in a virtual summit today that they expect Beijing to help end Russia's war in Ukraine and at the very least not to interfere with international sanctions imposed on Moscow. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen told reporters after the meeting, quote, we expect China, if not supporting the sanctions, at least to do everything not to interfere in any kind. She added that the EU expects China to use its influence on Russia to end the war. Meanwhile, negotiators from Ukraine and Russia spoke via video link even as previous talks failed to agree. Even on a temporary ceasefire, Russian President and uh, Prime Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov says Moscow is preparing a response to Ukraine's proposals on ending hostilities. The cost of heating a home, taking a shower, or cooking a meal rose to new heights for millions of people in the UK today as household energy prices hit a record. Days before a payroll tax increase also comes into force. The overnight surge in living costs, which pushes up the burden on Britain's already facing high inflation, will see the average domestic energy bill increase by 693 pounds over the next year as a result of sharp rises in wholesale prices. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. I've started taking cold showers, not actually because of the bills, but because I'm told it's good for you. I'm not entirely convinced. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So let's talk about the US economy. The US added close to half a million jobs in March. Non-farm payrolls increasing 431,000 last month um, after an upwardly upwardly revised 750,000 gain in February. Uh, This according to the Labor Department. The unemployment rate fell to 3.6%. That is near its pre-pandemic low. Participation in the U.S. economy also picked up as well. Marty Walsh is the U.S. Labor Secretary. He spoke to John Farrow. We think about moving forward into 2022. You know, 1.6 million people still need to return back to the workforce. Uh, how do we get them, those folks back to work? How do we make sure that, that labor participation number goes up? Uh, certainly, there's still jobs open in the United States. That's one of the things. I'm not taking away from the report. I'm very excited about the report. But, but I think we, we're thinking about here, how do we move forward? Marty Walsh, the U.S. Labor Secretary, speaking to John Farrow a little bit earlier on today. Uh, joining us now to discuss all of this is Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Mike, this is a... This is a hot labour market in the United States. I appreciate that the headline payroll number was a bit of a miss, but dig into the details for us and just explain what is going on here. This feels strong. It feels strong. Uh, what's going on is the economy is recovering very quickly from the pandemic. We see it sort of an upside-down V in terms of the unemployment rate. And 
it's been hard for companies to find workers so because people wanted to stay home after they were home for a while or had money because the government was giving them stimulus payments. And so now uh, they're having to pay up. So at the same time, we're seeing big employment gains. We're also seeing big wage gains. Unfortunately, we're also seeing, as you are in the UK, big uh, inflation gains. So at this point, uh, Marty Walsh was talking about how they keep this going while the Fed is going to be talking about how they slow this down. <laughs> it's just uh, incredible. I mean, you look at some of these numbers, Mike. I mean, I just think, you know, when a situation whereby we're back to September um, 2019 lows in, in our employment rate, um, you know, it's good to see the participation rate ticking up um, and indeed the sort of the underemployment rate ticking down. So, uh, oh, we got a, um, a return to the workforce coming from older people who thought they could retire, but actual fact, with the cost of living going up, they can't. Uh, what are the dynamics that you see in going through, which is altering the way the workplace is? Well, what we've seen in the last uh, couple of months is that we're seeing more young people come into the labor force and we're seeing more women come back into the labor force. Two things that were kind of predicted. The retired people, uh, that, that makes up a big segment of the folks who didn't come back yet. And we saw in the 1990s that the economy was so strong when we got down to 3.5% unemployment then, we saw a lot of people coming off the sidelines who were retired coming back because they figured they could make a little extra money. And that's a dynamic that we're still waiting to see this time. But it could happen. Uh, the only issue is that inflation's so much higher, the Fed's going to be trying to slow the demand. And uh, at this point, maybe workers are, uh, if you're retired, uh, you may want to stay on the sidelines. So this could, go, this could go lower. This could go to 3%, couldn't it? Well, there are some who predict that. Jim Bullard, who's the president of the St. Louis Regional Fed Bank, says we should be at 3% by the end of the year. And if this kind of trend continues, we would be. Uh, the unemployment rate kind of a, a residual of the number of people who are coming into the labor force. And each of the last three months, we've seen significant numbers returning. People were waiting until COVID was kind of over and until they needed the money. And now they're coming back in droves. Mike, let's just talk a little bit about how the Fed is going to be reacting to this. Um, Charlie Evans up in Chicago was giving some comments earlier on. The, the expectation appears to be increasingly sort of nailed down that we're going to get a 50 basis point hike from the uh, from the Fed next time round. And I've been surprised by the the lack of pushback from the Fed in terms of commentary over the uh, the last few weeks. And I'll be waiting to see if anybody does. And, and kind of in a way, Charlie Evans just has. He doesn't have a 50 basis point hike in his forecasts. How post this payroll number, post the ISM number, which at a headline level actually came down, but nevertheless, the the labor component of it was very strong. Post this payroll number, is 50 is 50 the base case or is 25 still the base case from the Fed in terms of the next meeting? In terms of the next meeting, I think 50 is the base case because uh, Jay Powell last week uh, suggested that the Fed would be open to that. And he got a sure, we're willing to consider it from almost all members of the Fed's Open Market Committee. And that has reinforced it, the idea in the minds of investors. And so the market has priced in almost, a, a, they basically priced in a 50 basis point move. And the Fed uh, is not going to surprise the markets. If we go into that meeting with them expecting 50, they're going to get 50. So 
it would take more than just – Charlie Evans was the first one who has said he doesn't think we need uh, 50 basis points, and he's not a voter this year. So I would think that unless something significant happens between now and May 4th, uh, we're going to get a 50 basis point move. And you look at what's likely from the inflation, the CPI inflation report we're going to get on the 12th of this month, uh, it's going to put pressure on the Fed to do the 50. Yeah, my, I think that's. I'm, I'm coming around to that conclusion. You're right. The Fed, the Fed can't disappoint the market here. They could, of course, shade it with a, a sort of dovish 50 basis point hike, which clearly is a bit of contradiction in terms. Um, but I think once the uh, you know market gets used to 50 basis points, then we'll start getting more and more calls for 75 basis points or possibly even intra-meeting hikes, which I know they've always been very careful to, to dissuade. Can I, can I just so, say, P. Jim. P. Jim earlier on today was bringing up the idea of a 100 basis point hike. <laughs> yeah, you give them an inch, they'll take 100. Um, but that's I the think, point, isn't it, that they extrapolate. The market, as soon as it yeah. gets 50, will start extrapolating. And a lot of well, people are already doing that. To that extent, I think Marcus is right. You'll see a sort of dovish pushback from Powell at the meeting. They'll do 50, but he'll say, this doesn't guarantee we're going to do 50 next time. Yeah. We're going to wait and watch and see. There is still concern that the economy is going to slow. You mentioned the ISM number coming down a little bit. Maybe that's statistical noise, or maybe it's the start of a trend. We did see uh, the uh, PMIs in Europe all falling uh, this past month. So uh, it it could be that the Fed is going to want to take a break or hold off. Uh, right now, Wall Street's predicting nine straight moves in six meetings. So you got to get some 50s in there if that's the case. But, uh, but I... I, I think that the Fed would say that's, that's too much at this point. Um, but then that raises the other thing, which is, of course, quantitative tightening. Now, we started in the UK. Um, we had this huge uh, redemption coming off, and, and it was confusing everyone. And they ended up, you know, a needed hike, and, and they, they triggered the, the, this sort of passive quantitative tightening, which is just letting things run off. Um, where do you see the Fed mingling uh, quantitative tightening, be it either passive or active, in with these rate hikes, because I think that's what may change the actual you know, number of, of rate hikes if they introduce QT. Yeah, the problem is the Fed doesn't know the impact of QT, in, whether they're selling or uh, just letting things run off. There's all kinds of estimates about what that could mean in terms of interest rates. Uh, general feeling is it, m- it might be uh, if a year's worth might be worth 25 basis points, but they aren't sure. So I would expect them to do as they did last time, start small with caps on how much runs off. Don't do any selling for now and see if they can just get it going in the background and, you know. People- so say that again, Mike, how much you said 25 basis points is equivalent to a year's worth of redemptions? Uh, redemptions. Uh, assuming they do the capped redemptions as they did the wow, last that's time. Very low. It's just interesting because Carney put up a number on the way in, the QE. He, they reckoned uh, um, uh, something like 100 basis points uh, was equivalent to 120 billion pounds, called that 150 billion bucks. You know, that's, that they thought it was worth a lot more on the way in. They clearly, therefore, think quantitative tightening is, as in exiting, is, is worth nothing like the monetary impact. Uh, that's a very low number, um, 
and and maybe they're right. I mean, I think the great thing about quantitative easing and tightening is that no one's got any idea. Yeah, <laughs> and what they would like is for it to have very little impact because they want to be able to use the Fed funds rate to to move things around. And since you don't know what you're going to get from the QT, you don't want to rely on that because you may get too much uh, or not enough. So for the Fed, they'd like to as they they'd like to go back to the old cliche about watching paint dry. I'm not sure if that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, um, Mike. It was interesting. Brevin Howard earlier this week was talking about the fact that what we're returning to here is a 1970s economy, and the big difference between sort of now and the 1970s economy was well, there's many things, but one of them is the power that the unions used to have. They don't anymore. But today we saw Amazon having to effectively unionize one of its key warehouses in New York, its fulfillment centers, where a union basically has clinched a fairly significant victory. If if we start to see this being replicated elsewhere, and we do see a return of labor in a unionized form in a much bigger way, and it's coming from a very low base, what impact could that have? It could have a very uh, it's limited impact, I think, because at this at this point, the uh, the unionization is so small that yeah. you don't know what's actually going to going to happen. And uh, the issue with Amazon has been more about uh, working conditions than pay. Right, uh, and that was certainly true during during the pandemic. But but uh, what I'm trying to figure out here is is. Labor clearly now has a much greater say in the way that things are going to evolve from here. It's going to sharpen profit margins, I think, during the reporting season that we're about to experience. Uh, and I'm wondering how much does this have legs, I guess, is the question I'm asking, because this is what the Fed is going to be kind of thinking about. Well, that was the theory behind the Biden administ- some of the Biden administration's economic proposals when they first came in is try to stimulate the rise of labor so that uh, there would be negotiations on behalf of workers. If you look at the employee share of corporate profits, it's been going down for decades. And we saw a spike recently uh, during the pandemic, and now we're back to below where we were before the pandemic started in terms of labor's share uh, of profits. And so uh, at this point, it doesn't – any impact is going to be small because it's going to take a while if there, yeah. if there is union uh, movement. Um, having a Starbucks uh, of eight employees uh, unionize isn't going to make a big difference. Okay, Mike McKee, always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, sir. Greatly appreciate it. Up next, we are into the final countdown before the French election. Uh, It is coming up in a few days' time. Uh, Let's talk next about what is going on and what impact it can have. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. Uh, We are live on DAB Digital Radio, 548 in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth. Uh, We are about to enter the final week of the uh, the French election campaign. 
Uh, we will be going into the first round on Sunday the 10th of April uh, with the second round to follow. Current polling uh, certainly seems to suggest that Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent, the French president, uh, will win. Uh, the latest polling that I'm looking at on my screen right now um, basically puts Macron at 26.5 in the first vote, Le Pen uh, at 20. Uh, if that is the case, that would take them both into the second round and uh, where Macron leads uh, Le Pen 54 to 46. This is an Ipsos poll uh, that I'm looking at. Uh, in other polls, uh, the, the numbers look fairly similar. Uh, Macron 21-28 in the first round. Um, let's try and get some analysis here on what is happening. Is this a done deal, which most people seem to be assuming for Macron? How close will it be? Because that will be significant as well um, in terms of defining policy going into the, uh, the, into the next uh, government. Uh, Lionel Laurent joins us now. Bloomberg's Lionel Laurent to give us a take on this. Lionel, thanks for taking the time to speak with us this evening. Look, um, I, I'm becoming increasingly jaded with polling. How accurate do you think these numbers are going into the final week? That is a good question. Remember that uh, we we actually had a similar story uh, back in 2017 um, when the polls looked actually even even tighter and uh, Macron ended up surprising to the upside. I think the, the direction of travel seems quite realistic. The, 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 the point here is to say that we've just had um, a pandemic and, and a war that have really allowed Macron to stay above the fray, which is why he's had this, this polling lead. Uh, and as he comes down from Mount Olympus, let's say, he is unveiling more of his program and he's looking more like a candidate. And of all of the stories that we've had, we've had um, some of the far-right candidates get a brief bounce. We had a centre-right candidate get a bounce. We had um, some far-left candidates get a bounce. The story that we haven't had, that we haven't seen yet, is Macron falling a bit, falling to earth, and that is what we're seeing now. So I think it's actually highly realistic that after these crises and after, frankly, a pretty poor election campaign, when the French start getting interested, they start seeing Macron as a as a candidate. A, among others, so that's that explains, I think, the, uh, the the narrowing, which I think is quite realistic. So, Lionel, I mean, what's interesting to me is obviously he's got his big rally tomorrow, I believe, in a rugby stadium of thirty odd thousand. Uh, I'm sure that'll be um, a capacity crowd. Um, but it, they seem like they're going through the motions, both uh, Marine Le Pen and himself, because they they obviously know that the likelihood is they go to do the second round, and then that's when it gets interesting. I am amazed the tightness of those polls for the second round. I don't sure I believe them, but you know we haven't really, as you said, heard much from Macron himself as a candidate. But equally, we haven't really had Marine Le Pen turn up and say anything controversial at all. Well, I think you raised two things. Firstly, I agree with you. I, I think we need to treat each round separately. There is the old proverb in France that you vote with your heart in the first round and your head in, in the second. I think uh, just like last time, there were plenty of theories about what, what would happen if Macron and Le Pen got through in round one. Uh, and in the end, they, they didn't come to pass in, in, in round two. So we, we should, I agree, stick to each round separately. To your point about Le Pen's program. Now, I think that what we have seen from all candidates is take, taking lessons from Macron. Um, keep your program uh, changeable. Keep it vague, not very specific. I mean, remember that Le Pen, up until a few months ago, was, was, was promising to bring the retirement age of France down to 60. She's, she's gone back on that. But it, but it just shows you how a lot of this stuff really is uh, poorly costed and very vague. And I would say that, Ma that this is a fight about personality and not policy. And if Le Pen looks like a threat, uh, it's because she looks less 
frightening that she did in 2017, those policies, those promises of leaving the euro, leaving the EU are no longer there. And it's that, it's that vagueness um, that, that you touch on that, that could also uh, swing things and make things uh, dangerous for Macron this year. What would a what would a what would the next government look like for Macron were he to win? How much latitude would he have? Let's say it was kind of along current lines. How strong a government would that give him? I read the other day as well somebody suggesting that that maybe even Christine Lagarde could emerge as a possible candidate to be part of that government. Can you just give us an idea of what the next iteration of the Emmanuel Macron government is going to look like? Um. So, uh, the other there's, there's one more element to this that I think answers your your, your question too, which is the parliament. Um, yeah. uh, Macron has had five years of a, of a majority in parliament. The, the big question is whether the parliamentary elections that come straight after the presidency will give him that majority. So I think uh, most people are banking on some kind of um, smaller majority or even some kind of uh, coalition, which which immediately reduces the the scope of the possible. Um, in terms of the government, I mean, it, it it is it is highly speculative at this point. Names names right now are being bandied around could be being bandied around for for a lot of reasons. I. I don't know. People seem very confident that Lagarde would 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 say yes. I mean, I have no idea. You could argue that things go in in, in the other direction. Um, she was put. She needs to get out of the ECB, Leonhard. Really, <laughs> I think yeah, she was. She, 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 she was put at the ECB recently by uh, by Macron, and her whole political story has been the other way, which is to say, uh, domestic politics have not been kind to her, so she's gone elsewhere for that. Um, so, to, to be honest, I mean, I I, I just think. Macron's whole shtick has been neither right nor left, poach the best people, particularly from from the center right, because that's that's the area that, that he's hunting at for the moment. And um, a lot of the kind of reform agenda will depend on parliament and, frankly, the street. I mean, it's protests that decided the course of his of his um, successes and failures in, in the last uh, term. And if he's re-elected, I suspect policies like increasing the yep. retirement age to 65 will depend also on that. Lionel, thank you very much indeed. Uh, there's going to be some really interesting coverage over the next few days on the Bloomberg Terminal. So looking forward uh, to getting your opinion on kind of the direction of travel and where we go after it. Bloomberg's Lionel Laurent, thank you very much indeed. Um, Marcus, views on next week in 20 seconds. Anything that stands out? Oh, I just wanted to be quiet, please. A nice, nice, nice no. boring week. Um, perhaps we can get some deals on the corporate side done. Um, you, know, you know, remember M&A? Do you remember that sort of thing? Merging acquisitions and companies being bought, you know. Get back to, some corporate back to corporate news. Well, the reporting season's about to start, so that'll be certainly maybe a catalyst for that. Have a great weekend. This is Bloomberg. Good. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Have a good weekend, Marcus. Cheers, and you guy. And um, Tim, I'll sort out. So this, it's called Road NT, R O D E. Okay, so I, I'm fine with hearing, I think, you know, if it's over Skype or, or whatever, how we would do it. Yeah, is that how we would do it, using Skype or? Um, and so I don't need to have something on my head. I just need something that you can hear me clearer with. So, so 
all I'm saying is £89 on Amazon, and it looks literally like a microphone, the old-fashioned black square thing, yeah? And you plug you plug that bad boy in, and or you can get no. Like I do have some uh, AirPods, but um, yeah, don't know how to use them very well, but. <clears throat> Uh, okay, so maybe you think what I should get is get the kit, which is the uh, Rode NT-USB Mini, but it's got a, like a, oh my God, it's got a, all sorts of things going on. Okay, um, I'll look into it. That's very kind. Wonderful. Have a great weekend, my friend. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye.